What do you suppose are the limits that God has placed on His church? Yes, I said God has placed on His church. And during the next hour, I want to make that very clear as to what I mean by that. What are the limitations on our growth? What are the limits on the number of members we could attract into the truth of God to become members of God's church? I've always been impressed as I have read history with the number of people who have been movers and shakers and the number who have been followers and who have been spectators sitting on the sidelines. I have also been impressed as I have been working with a major church organization which began as a tiny, insignificant, little-known, unheard-of church offshoot of an offshoot. As a result of the voice of one man, my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, who began making some very brash and bold statements in 1934, 5, and 6 about God's church, about the identity of the American people, about the future of our nation, about prophecy, who came up with a dream in the middle 1940s about a college. I very well remember the day that I suggested to him the name of that college because we had a club in Eugene High School. It was a speaking club that I think also had religious overtones. It was called Ambassadors Club. And I said, why not name the institution Ambassador College? I remember that the colors of my high school were purple and white. And I mentioned that purple is the color of royalty and white is the color of righteousness. And so those colors became the colors of Ambassador College. A humble little institution, deep in debt, that began with eight faculty members and four students in 1947. It grew to a point in history where it had an opportunity to become a great university. It had an opportunity to move the entire undergraduate college over to Big Sandy, where we would have been unlimited by any kind of hassle with state historical societies with various limitations imposed by big urban areas such as the Civic Redevelopment Association or the West Side Residents Association of Pasadena, California, the State Historical Society, Society as I mentioned, that had to do with some of the big buildings contiguous to the campus, uh, freeways coming right through the middle of the campus with which we had to contend for some years, etc. The fire marshal who came along and hit them with a huge tab that caused them about two years' frustration trying to dig out from behind terrible indebtedness because of the lack of two-hour fire-resistant fire walls in the original building. When I look back now, though, and I look at the history, including my own history from my boyhood, teenage, clear on up to the time now of my nearing 60 years of age, passing 57 very quickly. I don't want to hurry the process, but I'm entering my 58th year, as my father might put it. And I see where we went, how far we came, and also how near a thing it might have been that the Worldwide Church of God, an ambassador college, could have literally, literally fulfilled the great commission placed upon it by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and could have rocked this nation back on its heels, and could have given this nation a witness and a warning that would have been so, so preponderous, so overwhelming, so shocking, that it would have literally been the topic of conversation on everyone's lips. Now, great religious leaders, great, you can, that's a relative term, I could argue that with anyone, uh, do sometimes come to the notice of uh, the media. And they do it in rather strange ways, like claiming to talk to God, 
or building great monuments for which they have no money, which are not needed, and then going to the general public to try all sorts of bizarre fundraising methods to justify the existence of an institution that they have begun. How well I remember the experience in what we called America Listen, parenthesis, before it's too late, in going to city after city all over this United States with a beautiful group of young people dressed in candy-striped red, white, and blue, with patriotic and religious numbers, one just like you heard, How Great Thou Art, ones that were sung by good-looking young students and uh, beautiful singers, and with rear-screen projection of pictures of the United States, both bad and good, the slums of Bedford-Stuyvesant with then a picture of the wheat fields of Kansas, maybe waves crashing against the uh, California coast on one moment and all of the triple X-rated theaters in New York City on the next, as we would show people the sickness of our country and where it was going. Going to a city like Cincinnati and standing in a large community auditorium where we averaged four meetings Friday, two on one on Sabbath, and two on Sunday, and we averaged over 6,000 people per meeting, preaching very powerfully the gospel of the kingdom of God, seeing double rows of nuns in their own habits out there, people from other churches, and seeing the glint of tears by the hundreds streaming down people's faces when they were moved very, very deeply by what we were accomplishing in God's church in those days. For many, many years, people now associated with what it says on the front of this podium were then suffering from an identity crisis. They don't really know who they are. They don't know where they belong. They don't know where they are going. Are we what they say we are, or are we who we say we are? Are we really another little upstart rebellion movement? an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot, which was an offshoot. It began long ago in the William Miller movement, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Seventh-day Baptist movement, the Church of God's Seventh Day, the Oregon Conference of the Church of God's Seventh Day. I want to show you something about this radical upstart, the way the Jews looked at him, called Jesus Christ, when he came preaching a very, what they thought was radical sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of it, verse 28 of the seventh chapter of Matthew, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. It's not astonishing to you to read, Blessed are the meek, turn the other cheek. But it was astonishing to them. And it was not only astonishing that he said what he did, but notice it was also astonishing because of how he said it. For... He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Well, how must the scribes have taught? Well, they must have appealed to people's sensitivities, to their emotions. They wheedled and whined and argued and cajoled. They begged and they reasoned, but they did not speak as one having authority. Because when one has authority, one understands that no matter how hard you may try to communicate that which you know, and you know that you know it, there may be doubters in the audience. There may even be hecklers in the audience who simply will not go along with what you believe. But a person having authority is a person who has credentials, who has knowledge, training, the skill to deliver what he understands. A person who has authority is one who preaches or teaches in the complete assurance that he is delivering the truth. And when he delivers the truth, he so believes in it, so knows it himself, that there is no apology. 
There's no need for simpering or wheedling or whining or begging or cajoling or pleading with people to believe. There is simply the stating of concrete facts. And so Jesus preached as one having authority. He was assured. In Mark, the 11th chapter, I'll come back a little later on to the first part of this chapter, perhaps, or at least another version of it, when Jesus cleaned out the temple. I want to mention that a little later. But in 11 and verse 28 of the book of Mark, they said unto him, he was in Jerusalem teaching, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, verse 27. And they demanded to know, by what authority do you these things? Here was a person who came to them with no credentials from any great major institutions of his day, unlike the Apostle Paul, Saul, who could say later on he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Jesus Christ could not say that. He could not bandy about the name of the Levite who may have taught him a couple of languages. He could not come to them as the graduate, having credentials of some famous school of the Pharisees. And so, in fact, he was merely a man of the country, the hill country of Galilee. Now, who was he to them? I know who he is to me. I know who he is to you. But who was he to them? Why, to them he was not only nobody, but he was a despicable upstart who had no right or no business or no credentials or no reason whatsoever to be allowed to darken the door of the building when they were the ones in authority. They were the ones in control. They were those who were credentialed. They were those who had status and standing. And Christ had none of those things. He was, in a sense, the way they looked at it, a man of the street. And so they said, By what authority you do, do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said, I will also ask of you one question, and you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Well, they took a quick little caucus there and began to buzz and hum and reason among themselves and said, If we shall say from heaven, let's find out what the expedient answer is. So there was no honesty, was there? There was no honesty at all. It wasn't, answer me. Yes, the answer is this or that. There was no answer on their lips. It was always, what is the most expedient thing to say in the audience of these people because we fear the people because it is their support we must have? If we say from heaven, he will say, what will his retort be? Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. If you fear the people, you are what? You are a politician. Politicians are paid to say what they do. Politicians must please a constituency. Politicians are hired. They are paid professionals. They have a whole group of people behind them who are their supporters. And many politicians so lust for the office they occupy that they will do practically anything to achieve it, and then once there, to keep it, and if possible, to enhance it, and to progress through the ranks. There is not a governor in the, in the 50 states of the United States who does not dream every day that someday he will be president, nor his wife. There is not a mayor of a small town that doesn't want to be governor. Just put that down in your mind and believe it, because it is the way human nature works. So they were expedient. And they answered, well, we cannot tell. Isn't that an interesting statement? Completely ambiguous. Well, we cannot say. Well, we really can't say, can we? Hmm. 
It sounds like one of the British professors that I remember a story that I want to deviate and tell you about. We cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Take a look at the first time he cleansed the temple over in John, the second chapter. Believe it or not, he did so twice, by the way. Many people don't know that. But this is at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. Now, quickly, while you're turning there, a brief recollection of exactly who it was with whom he was dealing and the setting or the environment. He was dealing with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were people who were of the religious clique, the legitimate successors, remember this, of Moses' religion, which wasn't Moses but God's, but they had perverted it, which is why you understand a lot of times in the New Testament a lot of people have trouble with this when it says the Jews' Passover was at hand. Look at what the authorities say on that statement, because by the time of the return from Babylonian captivity, a complete new dialect and a complete new edition of Talmudic law, the old Passover, which had always been referred to in ancient prophetic writings and all down through the, the dynasties of the kings of Judah, as the feasts of Jehovah, were now the feasts of the Jews. And all the New Testament writers listed it that way because that's what they had become, because they were no longer the festivals of Jehovah or of God Almighty, but they were now the feasts of the Jews because of all the additions and all the deletions and all of the different uh, innovations that they had attached to the festival. Here were then the legitimate successors who were called apartists. Now, in our language, we think of them as Pharisees, but the word Pharisee merely meant one apart. It was a connotation that they enjoyed because they could see that they ought to be special, they ought to be different, they ought to be unique. And so they wanted to be the special ones, the called out ones, and they wanted to be apartists or separatists. And they were the Pharisees. Now there was something about Pharisee. They always knew exactly where they belonged. There was the high priest, there was the chief priests, and there were the various other priests, and there were the scribes, and then there were just all the Pharisees. And everybody knew exactly what his status was. Now here they were, not necessarily the proprietors themselves of the temple, but together with the Essenes, who were an esoteric sect, and the Sadducees, who were the priestly caste who had charge of the temple. They comprised in those three major sects the religion that had been polluted and perverted. It was called the religion of Moses, but Jesus himself acknowledged, quote, they sit in Moses' seat. Now remember what these hill country men from Galilee said to Jesus Christ in the first part of the 24th chapter of Matthew about the temple. They said, Master, look at these marvelous buildings. How many people here have seen St. Peter's, the Vatican? Nobody, just a couple of us, my wife and Mr. Dark, myself. Well, if you ever get a chance to go to Italy, you must do it. You will be in awe, but you will be in awe if you see other great buildings that you scarcely can believe, such as going inside of and looking at the, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, which I've also seen and gone inside of. But these men might have been like someone who lived in maybe Gresham, Oregon, going to New York City and nearly getting a sore neck standing around looking in awe at the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building and looking out the taxi cab just in awe at these canyons of 80 and 90 and 110 story buildings. And they were just overwhelmed. Now the temple should have been absolutely spotless. The temple and its court 
had been so designed that it was magnificent with huge columns and colonnades and rich tapestries with carpets and draperies with beautiful friezes and cornices with pomegranates and very beautiful things uh, from nature that would be a part of its decoration. Of the finest ornate marbles, the finest gold and highly polished vessels of all the finest burnished bronze and brass. And remember that temple service was so set up of God that not only did they weave from the very finest of skins the embroidered tapestries and drapes that decorated the walls of this glittering, magnificent structure, but also they had an entire caste of priests who did nothing but serve the temple. They, they rubbed and scrubbed and polished. That was when it was in its heyday and when it was magnificent and when it was beautiful. These proprietors of the temple looked upon it as being representative of God's heaven. It was also, as we know metaphorically, a symbol of God's church. It was looked upon as the building in which God dwells, and therefore the building was holy. And when someone entered that building, he did so in awe, and he was awestruck. And it was a place where he felt if he prayed, God was right there and would hear him. And so long as that temple stood, those people had a physical thing that they could approach, a building that they could enter. And when they entered it, it was an overwhelming emotional religious experience. The proprietors of the temple, Christ admitted, sat in Moses' seat. Now here one would expect to come from the hill country of Galilee and to see one of the most magnificent buildings that had ever been built to see something so clean, so spotless, so holy, that it filled you with awe. But as you walked up those steps and entered the court and came to the big pilloried court of Solomon, the court of the Gentiles, instead you heard the blatting and the bleating of sheep. You heard the cooing of doves, hundreds, thousands of them. You looked in amazement, and here was a spidery-looking little fat Jew sitting over there in a black robe with soup down his beard. And behind him were a whole lot of rickety old wood cages, and right there milling around with a bunch of sheep with the pellets and the droppings all over, and the stench of animal dung. And here they sat, row after row after row of them. And they were called by a Greek word that has to do with a little coin. They were called coiners, if we would put it in the English language, because of the one little coin with which they dealt, because people came on pilgrimages from all parts of Jewry from all over the known eastern Mediterranean world, and they came there with different kinds of currency and different kinds of coins. And so they had to change it and exchange it, you know, when you get off the airport or the airplane. It is to this environment Jesus Christ of Nazareth makes his first trip to the city of Jerusalem. John 2 and verse 12, after that miracle at the Feast of Cana in Galilee when he had turned water into wine. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover, notice the language, was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting, sitting amidst oxen droppings, you know, and old oxen and sheep and doves. It took him a while, and I should imagine he stood there, and where he found the materials, I'm not certain. But he stood there looking with malevolent eyes upon these people and began to fashion a whip. He plaited a whip. He made a scourge of small cords. These are simple words to read, but I like to picture what that must have been like. You ever herded sheep? You ever herded cattle? 
You ever grab the whole bunch of great big wooden rickety crates filled with doves and simply smash them and let the doves fly away? Have you ever overturned tables right into the lap of a lot of greasy, avaricious, cunning thieves and let them fall over backward, sputtering awkwardly in their own robes and tangled on the gritty, pellet-splattered floor with the money rolling in every direction while they're seeing their livelihood and they're scrabbling around their hands and knees trying to grab the money and stuff it in their bulging pockets? with a young man who was working among them and saying, get out of here at the top of his lungs, was driving sheep and oxen and hurling doves out onto the porch and outside of that temple area. I imagine there are so many corseted Protestants sitting with their blue hair and swollen ankles in churches all over the world that could no more tolerate a Jesus Christ who would walk into their midst and act and look and talk the way this Christ did that they would want to take him out and do the same thing to him that the Jews did during that day. Because the true Jesus Christ of Nazareth just wasn't palatable to people. Not then, and he wouldn't be now. He looked like a revolutionary trying to bring about a famous beer hall putsch in the temple. They wondered, what is this man doing? They were astounded. They were shocked that Jesus could become so violent. He overturned the money changers' tables. He drove them out of the temple. He overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things out of here. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. The disciples remembered, and we'll come back to this, that it was written over in Psalm 69.9, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. They remembered that that had been written and that that was a part of the description of God's word, a description of God's Son. Isn't it interesting that these Pharisees and Jews had turned the temple, which was a picture of heaven itself, which was a physical, material invitation to salvation and eternal life, which was, as a metaphor, a very picture and a type of God's true church. Those big gates were the way to heaven. Inside was the holy place, and inside that was the holy of holies, into which the high priest could go only once per year on the Day of Atonement to appear in the very, as it were, face of Almighty God to make atonement on behalf of all of the people. When a Jew, trembling with anticipation, came all the way from Cyprus or Crete or Cappadocia, and was one of the pilgrims who got there maybe once in his whole life and would go back and become like the Hajj, as they say in the Arabic language, which means a person who made the pilgrimage to Mecca and become noted as an elder and a sage in his own community because I have seen the temple. It was a magnificent occasion for them. Here were the proprietors of the temple. But what had they made of it? What had they turned it into? Now take a look at modern American evangelism for a moment. Look at all of the millions of Americans who turn around their television channels every Sunday morning with dreams and hopes of getting rid of some of these horrible things that plague them and bother them. Millions of people on welfare. Millions of people living in small, very ramshackle, rickety little clapboard houses. Their address may be saying three and one half because they live behind somebody else's house. Tens of millions of Americans, some of them elderly, already having lost a mate. Ninety-two million Americans with a registered form of chronic disease. Millions of them with asthma, with heart troubles, with arthritis, 
with every other kind of sickness and disease you can imagine. What do they want? They don't want aches, they don't want pains, they don't want suffering, they don't want nightmares, they don't want hangovers, they don't want loneliness. What do they want? They want understanding. They don't get it from their own children, their own families. Many of them are put out in nursing homes and old folks' homes and ignored by their own family, and so they turn to who? Well, you know some of their names. Now, as I look around at this and I ask, and I have asked many, many audiences, is that the best God can do? I mean, here is Almighty God that puts the sun up there in the heavens and the, the stars and calls them all by name. Now, forgive me if I see a similarity, but here is religion, and here are tens of millions of people with fervent hope in their heart who desperately need comfort, security. They desperately need healing for their ills. They need economic release. They need an absence of the aches and pains. They need fulfillment. They need reward. They need happiness and a feeling of of knowing where they're going, of knowing that they got a stake in the kingdom of God, and so anxiously, eagerly, they listen to these people on television. And what do the people on television do to them? They exploit them. They reach out and they squeeze their wallet. They reach out and tell them to mortgage their home. Send me money. And then what do they do with the money? They build monuments to Turkish ego. They build huge, beautiful, splendiferous buildings and hospitals and put their name on it. So that when they're gone, as it says in the Psalms, that men like to name buildings and monuments after themselves, it will still be there so that they can gain a kind of an immortality with your money. Pardon me if I see a similarity of avaricious, cunning thieves whom Jesus named exactly what they were squatting in the temple, as if they had moved into the very temple of God and occupied it, and a steady stream of sincere, wanting, hurting, aching, searching, seeking people of God, Hebrews all, coming to the very temple of God, wanting to find a little glimmer of what heaven may be like, of what eternal life in God's kingdom might have in store for them coming there with a heart in her throat and tears in her eyes and expectancy, and instead, oh, how, how much did you say it is? And, and what they wanted to do was to offer a sacrifice so they could go away feeling cleansed. Because it, it allowed them, you know, the Catholics are smart. Catholic, the, the Protestants don't have penance. The Catholics know that people need a feeling of relief. Catholics give it to them. They, they say, do those laps, you know, go around the rosary and say the Hail Marys. And when they do, they feel better. Well, it made those people feel better. Christ knew, and he said himself, Almighty God, that it was a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ, that it brought them to that place. But when an Israelite could see a lamb kicking for that horrible noise they make when you slit their throat, and I've watched lambs butchered, and it's awful. But they could go away realizing how ghastly was their sin, how ugly it really was, that it cost the life of an innocent little animal. And when that animal was sacrificed and it was all over and they were cleansed and they walked out of that temple with this whole ceremony all completed, they went out with a clean slate. They went out refreshed. They went out ready to start over in life and charge out there and take on the world because they'd been forgiven. Their sins were gone. They felt good about it. 
What do you think Jesus Christ thought of those who would take that process of these seeking people and halfway to this concept of forgiveness say, by the way, uh, it's going to cost you uh, a little. And so Jesus went in early in his ministry, the very beginning of his ministry here. He had just barely told his mother that he wasn't going, Moon, what am I going to do with you? It's not my time yet. His time was not yet. The very beginning of his ministry, he cleansed the temple. And again, at the late part of his ministry, he did it one more time. Because they were not to be daunted. They moved back in later on, you see. So you'll have to look at that. But it is actually chronologically correct that there were two temple cleansings, not once. Now, they demanded to know of Jesus his identity. Remember the line in Jesus Christ Superstar? Jesus Christ Superstar said the song, Are you who you really say you are? What were his credentials? Why, he said, the works that I do, they bear witness of me. And he said, I do not speak of myself, but my Father has given me a message what I should say and what I should speak. In Isaiah, the 59th chapter, let's turn to that briefly, is a prophecy about Jesus Christ and the fact that he was amazed at the end of this chapter that talks about the fact that great world leaders do not know the way of peace. There is no judgment in their goings. Verse 8. The transgressions and sins of God's people, and of all nations for that matter, testify against them in transgressing and lying against the eternal, verse 13, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Well, it says in verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, no one there to intercede on behalf of a sin-sick people and turn them to God. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He didn't wear a breastplate, but Jesus Christ put on righteousness and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was on fire with zeal. They remembered it when he cleansed that temple, went in there and drove them out, that he was filled with zeal from God the Father, that the zeal of his Father's house had consumed him. And therefore, Jesus Christ did exactly what he did, and he did so as if with great authority. Now, Jesus Christ's identity is still a big question in history, because most people do not know the true Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's why I wrote my book called The Real Jesus. They do not know what he looked like or anything else about him. When he was born, what he taught, why he did it, how and why he called the disciples, the message he delivered to them whether or not he was dead, how he died, how long he was dead, whether he was in the tomb three days and three nights or in hell, preaching to departed spirits, whether he walked out of the tomb bodily and was literally resurrected, or whether or not there was some other form or shape that he took, whether or not he is in heaven today, and if so, what has he been doing for the last nearly 1900 years? And is he in charge, active, vibrant, vital, alive, and over his true church today? Now, what is your identity? Do you know who and what you are? Now, as the church of God, what is our identity? If you will turn to Revelation 7, verses 2 and 3 for a moment, you will see that here in this prophecy of God, 
It says that the great plagues which are to fall during the time when the 144,000 and the great innumerable multitude are sealed are to be held back temporarily, verse 2, he cried not to hurt the earth and the sea, verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads, until we have sealed them. Now, you know what a seal is. When we affect an official corporate document, we have to affix our seal. It looks exactly like that seal on the front of the podium. And it has a little shield there, a helmet, some cross swords, which is symbolic of a scripture in the Bible that talks about those various aspects as being metaphor for righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and so on. And so we have adopted that as a corporate seal. Do you have an identifying seal? Are you sealed? It goes on then through all of this. Notice in verse 6, 7, all the way down through it, it says, of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Simeon, verse 7, were sealed 12,000. When you affix a seal, you're affixing an identifying official sign or a mark. Now, there's an opposite mark that you can have. My father wrote a very fascinating article back in 1939 in the Good News at that time, which was a mimeograph publication, in which he began to explain very, very, very loudly with, you know, triple exclamations and great capital letters that the form of church government that had been adopted by the parent organization with which he had worked, he began to believe was the image of the beast and said as much in 1939 because he said that kind of organization which he could not find in God's word anywhere was the same thing as borrowing from the old Roman system of Roman government which was the Romish, you know, the, the, the pagan Roman government, not before the so-called Holy Roman Empire, but was the pagan Roman government of old, and he said that is merely an adaptation of a pagan governmental system into the church, and therefore is the image of the beast. Now, my father used to preach a great deal about the mark of the beast and the number of his name and the image of the beast. The beast, that's another subject, is not the United States of America. It is not a computer in Belgium. The beast is the beast power that is going to emerge in the same area where the beast power has always been in the very heartland of Europe and is going to rise up. And the mark that that beast is going to impose, it may have something to do with the fact that the French denomination or money is called mark in French, franc, which means mark or seal or stamp. And the same thing is true in German, that it is mark. It says no man may buy nor sell. And it may have something to do with the ability to purchase and to get along in a economic community, but that is another subject. The important thing is that when a person gives his heart and his will in cooperation to that system, he is said to have a seal on his forehead which connotes his will or his volition, his willingness to submit to that system, and in his right hand, which is the hand with which you shake hands, even if you're left-handed, and with which you show a willingness to do work or to cooperate or to submit to some governmental authority or system your agreement with it. And so those who submit to that mark are sealed or set apart or have a symbol or a sign on them which says to the avenging angels of God, kill him. To those who do not have that mark, they have a different seal. And it's said to be on their forehead. And it says, spare him, because he has God's Holy Spirit. And that mark or that symbol is to come into their foreheads, as it says in Revelation 9 and verse 4. Those, in that chapter it said, 
who have not that mark, it was com commanded they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Do you have the seal of God in your forehead? Are you begotten? Are you converted? If you do, it is invisible, but it is there. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 22, we read that we have the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. When you effect a contract and someone says, I would like a check of $100 as earnest money, that is a down payment on the down payment. It isn't the full down payment. It is merely earnest money to secure a note or a contract or to say, yes, I'm going to be back and order this particular product and I'm going to pay you the full amount. The earnest of the Spirit in our hearts is the language the Bible uses. Now, Paul said, by one Spirit are we baptized into one body in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And notice Ephesians 1 and verse 14 for a moment, which states similar words, that we have a down payment or an earnest of our inheritance. Breaking into the middle of the thought in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed, you are stamped, you are identified, and God knows who you are, with that Holy Spirit of promise. It's interesting that even in the animal kingdom, you could have great herds, and it's always amazing to me, even among the bird colonies that I have seen with some of the movies from Jacques Cousteau and others in Antarctica and other far-flung areas of the earth where you can see gannets or these various types of bird, birds like penguins and so on, by the millions. And here will be birds out to sea, birds flying in the air, and you and I can look at rookeries of these birds where there are millions of them every one of those babies crying out with the same voice. And that mother bird will unerringly, out of all of that cacophony of millions of similar sounds, hear and go to and find her own chick. And it's one of the most dumbfounding things I've ever seen. And how at sea, among fish, how on the land, among deer, buffalo, elk, all sorts of animals, can these mothers find their own, same way you can, if you're the mother of a child? You will know your own. Well, God the Father knows His children. He has them identified. They have the stamp of His character. He knows them in the very same way. There is no mistake. He knoweth those who are His. And Jesus, in His final prayer, in the 14th through the 17th chapter of the book of John, said words to those effect that he prayed that God would keep them, that they might be one, as he and the Father were one. Let's notice John 17, verse 4 through 11. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. But he commissioned his church to go on with the great work which it has yet to do. Christ finished his work. But the work which he gave his church to do has not been accomplished. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are of you, came from you, came from God the Father. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me. I've delivered the message. I've trained them. They are now skilled. They are educated. They are now credentialed. They now have the authority of the gospel because they understand it. And they have received them. Went down deep into their hearts, and he said the Holy Spirit would call it all to mind when they were converted, as that happened on the day of Pentecost. And have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. I pray for them, and that includes us. I've used that scripture in the past to ask people. We, we hear every single day on the Sabbath people who are sick, and people say, I'm going to feel better if I know they will get up there and announce in these microphones that Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so needs your prayers. They're going to feel better. They're going to say, I think people are praying for me, and I'm going to feel better about that. How good would you feel if you could see Jesus Christ of Nazareth on his knees before his Father with your name on his lips, saying, Father, I pray for that person? That's what he's saying. I pray for them. He is our high priest. He is at the right hand of God the Father, knowing every one of us by the most intimate possible way, knowing us better than we know ourselves. As David prayed, search me and try me and see if there be any evil thing in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting, praying that God would get underneath his own self-deception, knowing that he could not pray as he ought, that sometimes we tend to kid ourselves even in prayer. And so he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and all of yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He is glorified in them, those of us who have his Holy Spirit. Notice again, if you will, the name on this podium. This is not a church of God wasn't incorporated as a church of God. This is incorporated as the church, which means ecclesia, called out ones, spiritual organisms scattered all over the world who have a relationship directly to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and therefore with each other only secondarily because our first fellowship was, is with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, having the seal of God and the approval of God because of the Holy Spirit those are our credentials. The church of God. The church of God. Now let me ask you one final question. The church of God, is it third class? Is it a second class organization? If you bear the name of Almighty God in your forehead, in your heart, are you second to somebody? You see all the crowds of the great excited arenas of football and basketball, and in the national championship, we're number one. Who are you? Are you who you say you are? We are the church of God. Thank God. <laughs>